0: Tonight I'd like to begin talking about the first discourse the Buddha gave after his enlightenment. It's often called setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion, or turning the wheel of the Dharma. And to discuss these teachings in the immediacy of our own lives and our own times. About a year or so ago, I began watching a series of documentaries on PBS uh, all about World War II. And in the watching of what was often a lot of actual film footage, you know, of the massive destruction and chaos and confusion of those times, it was really years when the whole world was aflame. It was quite amazing just to be watching this. Um, I couldn't help but think that our whole species had gone mad. You know, it's 50 million people got killed in those six years, not just not from natural death, of people killing each other. And so, watching just as a species, what are we doing? You know, what is going on here? And at a certain point you know, in these many hours of watching history unfold, my mind began to see it from a different perspective. And I think it was ultimately a more illuminating perspective. And that is instead of watching it basically as history or of concretizing and fixing particular historical events or nations or individuals, I began to see all of these huge events set in motion all across the world as being literally manifestations of mind. And it brought to the foreground the Buddha's essential teaching, mind is the forerunner of all things. You know, we hear that and we've probably heard it many times, but do we actually see that and understand that all of our actions and all of the actions of everybody, of every being in the world, has their origin in the mind. And it became so clear in watching these documentaries, and then even more importantly, and in seeing our own world today, both globally and the particulars of our own individual lives, that this mind is this powerful, mysterious energy that's capable of the greatest harm or the greatest good. And seeing things in this way, it really motivated me and us to explore, well, what is this mind and how is it working? Now, it's capable of creating this massive amount of suffering and destruction and capable of every kind of happiness. You know, we see that when it's untrained and untamed, it leads to whirlwinds both on a, on a global level and on an individual level in our own lives. It just leads to whirlwinds of confusion and chaos. Driven on by the forces in the mind of ignorance and greed and hatred and fear. These are the forces which often drive it. So, seeing the world and all our individual lives in this way led me to really an ever deepening appreciation of the Buddha and in what taking refuge in the Buddha means. You know, this being who lived, you know, these thousands of years ago, who saw with, with such perfect clarity how all of these powerful forces in the mind were working. Somehow he was able to sort it all out. He was able to see what strengthened particular forces. He was able to see what weakened them, what uprooted them. And not only in the seeing of how it all worked, but somehow he found the pathway, he found the path through this mass of confusion you know, to a place of peace, of rest, of freedom, of awakening. You know, and in that place, Which begins to manifest all along the path to varying degrees, it's a place where generosity becomes the motivating force in the mind rather than greed, where it's love and compassion and kindness that more and more suffuse the mind rather than hatred and cruelty. For me, taking refuge in the Buddha, just increasingly has become more and more deeply infused with gratitude. Gratitude that there was this extraordinary being who could see all of this so clearly. I mean, we have a hard time stringing two or three breaths in a row. And somehow he was able to see all of the workings of this incredible energy that we call mind. And gratitude that there is a well-marked and well-trodden path that we can find within our own minds that lead us out of confusion, that lead us out of ignorance. Often now in taking refuge, I'll say, I take refuge in the Buddha and the awakened mind. I'll just add that little phrase to it. Because it's a reminder that it's the Buddha as a person who discovered you know the way, but that the essence of Buddhahood is not that person. The essence of Buddhahood is the awakened mind. And that awakening is the potential within all of our minds. So what is it that the Buddha discovered that night under the Bodhi tree, that night of his enlightenment? Well, he saw, and he understood so deeply, so completely, the Dharma. You know, that Sanskrit word, which in its most general meaning, refers to the lawful nature of our minds, of our bodies, of the world. You know, just as science discovers and expresses certain basic laws of the physical world, the Buddha saw that the mind, with all of its confusion, He saw that it was lawful, both in the causes of suffering and in the possibilities of happiness, of freedom, that things were not happening randomly, that there were causes and conditions for what arose. He saw the law of karma at work, that wholesome actions and motivations bring happiness. and that unwholesome ones lead to suffering. This understanding that we are the heirs of our own actions is an amazing gift. And I think many people, perhaps most people in this world, don't have this understanding. But in having it, it means that we can begin to guide the unfolding of our lives we can begin to inform our choices with wisdom. And it allows for that possibility that Thich Nhat Hanh spoke of so clearly and when he said, happiness is available, please help yourself to it. And what is that except saying that, yes, it's lawful if we develop the causes for happiness to arise, happiness follows. So it is available and we can help ourselves to it. On the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha also saw all the links of dependent origination, starting with ignorance, through craving and becoming, to birth, old age and death. He saw how this cycle just keeps revolving and how to deconstruct and decouple all those links. He saw the lawfulness of liberation in the links of what is called transcendent dependent origination, which is that chain of links that starts where we are with suffering. The first of those links is suffering, but then it leads through faith and confidence and joy and concentration to disenchantment, dispassion, and liberation. We just saw that. He saw how it was all working. He understood. He saw the Dharma. So just imagine for a moment the scene. You know, there's the Bodhisattva sitting under the Bodhi tree after years of striving, opening to these deepest truths, these most liberating truths of the Dharma the way things are, of his becoming a Buddha on that night. And then, as tradition has it, he began wondering whether anyone else would ever be able to understand this, you know, thinking beings are so enmeshed in the world and in the confusion and the ignorance, would anybody be able to understand it, these subtle and profound truths? And then as it said, he surveyed the world with his eye of wisdom and he saw that there were beings with but little dust in their eyes who would be able to understand, (coughs) who could awaken to the unconditioned, to the deathless. Okay, we're probably all familiar with this story, but how many of us identify with those beings who have but little dust in their eyes? We probably think, oh, the Buddha was just seeing somebody else. You know, he certainly wasn't seeing us. But just the fact that we're here, you know, that we've recognized to some extent the nature and the workings of our own minds. That we all see the power and the potential of awareness. All of this connects us very directly with those beings the Buddha thought of in these first moments of his awakening. So I think, you know, as many many teachers say, and I really have come to appreciate this, that we should take our Dharma seat with dignity. You know, we've all created the karma to be here, to be doing this. There's a tremendous power in that. So the Buddha then reflected on who might most easily understand what he had discovered. And he thought of those five ascetics who had been with him through the years of you know, his great ascetic practices. And they were staying in a deer park uh, in a little village which is now called Sarnath. In those days it was called Sipatana. And it's a small town across the river, uh, Ganges, uh, from Varanasi, or Benares. So the Buddhist saw that that's where these five ascetics were and he thought they would be right for understanding, so he set off uh, on foot to meet them. And when they first saw him, they were reluctant to greet him, to meet him, to receive him, because he had abandoned the path of these uh, extreme ascetic disciplines but then overcome by his presence by his radiance by his declaration of enlightenment they listened so I'd like to read the opening words of the sutta which are the words that the Buddha first spoke to these five ascetics so this is a powerful this is, this is a very um, powerful sutta, powerful discourse, because you can imagine his, the Buddha freshly enlightened, freshly awakened, having seen all of this, and this is his very first exposition of the Dharma. So as you hear the words, I mean, listen with that kind of um, appreciation. It's as if we're hearing the Buddha himself. So, thus have I heard, <clears throat> at, what ta- at one time the Blessed One was staying at Deer Park in Isipatana, near Varanasi. Then the Buddha addressed the five ascetics. O bhikkhus, one who has gone forth from worldly life should not indulge in these two extremes. What are the two? There is indulgence in desirable sense objects which is low, vulgar, worldly, ignoble, unworthy, and unprofitable. And there is devotion to self-mortification, which is painful, unworthy, and unprofitable. O bhikkhus, avoiding both these extremes, the Tathagata has realized the middle path. It produces vision, it produces knowledge, it leads to calm, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So the middle way, the pathway between two extremes, not indulgence in desirable sense objects, not being attached to or devoted to self-mortification Now on the surface of things, it appears that most of our work is in the former, not indulgence in sense pleasures. Self-mortification through extreme ascetic practices doesn't really seem to be one of our cultural values. We don't widely hold it as a path to liberation as it was commonly held in ancient India and even in some areas with some uh, yogis even held today. In our culture, the honoring of sense desires, the valuing of sense pleasures, though, is quite obvious. And we see it and are subject to it you know, all the time through the barrage of advertising in the media. It both plays to and feeds this conditioning that somehow <laughs> the more pleasure we have, the happier we'll be. I mean, this is the message that we grow up with. How many email spam messages have you gotten with the subject line, increase your desire, You know, as if somehow that's a good idea, that that's what we should be working for? Over the years I've come across, you know, just different advertisements that exemplify uh, this particular belief system and conditioning. One of them said, instant gratification just got faster. Shopvogue.com. <laughs> you know, go online, shop at Vogue, gratify everything instantly. <laughs> and sometimes they co-opt spiritual language. This was another favorite. To be one with everything, you need one of everything. <laughs> and the last one, which really says it all, nothing stands in the way of my pleasure. You know? And so this is, these are just you know some few examples. And while we may smile or even laugh at what seem like extreme examples, of this belief in sense indulgence, we should really take these first teachings of the Buddha to heart and really examine our lives, both here on retreat and in our daily lives. How much energy do we actually devote to acquiring or experiencing sense pleasures? How much of our energy is geared to pleasurable experience? And to be looking at this not from a place of self judgment and not from a place of aversion, but just from an interest in exploring other possibilities. The Buddha said there are two kinds of happiness the happiness of sense pleasures, so he's acknowledging that there is a happiness in them, the happiness of sense pleasures and the happiness of renunciation. But the greater of them is the happiness of renunciation. Have we explored this and seen it for ourselves? You know, it's not enough to listen to these words and either not in agreement or not, we, sort of, we have to make the teachings our own, and it only happens through our own investigation. Is this true in our experience of these two kinds of happiness? The Buddha is saying, sense pleasures and renunciation. He's saying the happiness of renunciation is the greater. So the challenge for us is finding out what this means in terms of a lay life, a householder life. I want to read just a few lines from a book on this first discourse of the Buddha by Dr. Rewatadama, who was a Burmese monk who accompanied uh, the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw when he visited IMS. Uh, this was back in the 70s. And Rewatadama was a, a great meditation teacher and scholar, both. And he had a center in England for many years. He died some years ago. So this is from his book on this very discourse. The sutta says that one who has gone forth from the worldly life should not indulge in sensuous pleasures. The question therefore arises whether ordinary worldlings may freely enjoy sensual pleasures. Since the gratification of sense desires is a human preoccupation, the Buddha emphasized the middle path. When one lives amidst worldly surroundings, one can enjoy sensual pleasures with wisdom. But one should avoid habits which lead to craving. The householder whose practice is serious should try to rein in and diminish his or her desires. So I thought that when I read that, I thought that really encapsulates our challenge. You know, as lay people, living in the world, we're just in the realm of sense pleasures and there's nothing wrong in the enjoyment of them, this is natural. However, understanding that there are greater kinds of happiness, I really appreciate this when he says, but one should avoid habits which lead to craving. So in our enjoyment, are we getting lost in habits which just create more and more craving for that, or not? Or are we we just in the simplicity of the the moment? So this is an ongoing investigation for us. Renunciation is not really a very popular word in the West. Because when we hear renunciation, most of us, I think, conjure up images of great self-deprivation and bleakness. For me, being on retreat, and this is a great opportunity we have, you know, being here at the Forest Refuge, it's a powerful reminder of the happiness of simplicity. Being on retreat in this kind of setting or any kind of setting is a powerful reminder, in my experience, that I'm more content, more peaceful, when there is the renunciation of my more usual sense desires. Do you have the sense when you, when you come here on the first day and you just go into your room for the first time, whew, just that sense of putting the world down, putting to some extent, down the grasping, the desire, and the wanting, and trying to fulfill. Just settling in, we can come to a place of rest. There is a great happiness in that. And then in the simplicity of these surroundings, we can watch the movements of our minds much more attentively, because we're not so distracted We can practice mindfulness of pleasant feelings and desires as they arise, and see clearly the difference between awareness of pleasant feelings and indulgence in them. So it's not that pleasant feelings stop. It's that we become aware of them. We're not lost in them. We're not caught by craving. So I want to read another little sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya, and I like it mostly because of one line. So I'll read it and see if there's any one line that jumps out at you. And I love how these suttas start because it really places it places the teaching in a very specific a time and place. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Vesali in the great wood in the hall with the peaked roof. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One was instructing, exhorting, inspiring, and gladdening the bhikkhus with a dhamma talk concerning the six spaces of contact. Eye, ear, nose, etc. And those bhikkhus were listening to the dhamma with eager ears, Attending to it as a matter of vital concern, applying their whole minds to it. Then it occurred to Mara, the evil one. This ascetic Gotama is instructing, exhorting, inspiring, and gladdening the bhikkhus who are applying their whole minds to it. Let me approach the ascetic Gotama in order to confound them. Then Mara, the evil one, approached the blessed one and not far from him made a loud noise, frightful and terrifying, as though the earth was splitting open. Then one bhikkhu said to another, Bhikkhu, bhikkhu, it seems as though the earth is splitting open. When this was said, the blessed one said to that bhikkhu, the earth is not splitting open, this is Mara, the evil one, who has come here in order to confound you. Then the blessed one addressed Mara, the evil one, in this verse. Forms, sounds, tastes, odors, tactile sensations, and all mental objects, this is the terrible bait of the world with which the world is infatuated. But when one has transcended this, the mindful disciple of the Buddha shines radiantly like the sun having surmounted Mars realm. The whole teaching is in that. And the line that I really love is, this is the terrible bait of the world. Because it really feels to me like you know, each moment's experience of a sight, or a sound, or a smell, or a taste, or a sensation, or a thought, or an image, or an emotion, sometimes it seems to me that each moment of experience comes along with a little hook on it. And we're like fish in the ocean. Do we bite? Each one is the terrible bait of the world. Do we bite on it? Do we cling to it? Do we identify with it? But when one has transcended this, the mindful disciple of the Buddha shines radiantly like the sun, having surmounted Mara's realm. On the other side of the middle way, (coughs) although most of us are not usually engaged in practices (coughs) of extreme physical self-mortification, in our practice of the middle way, we might look at the more subtle psychological levels of self-mortification and taking the Buddha's words to heart about devotion to these states as being painful unworthy, and unprofitable. Now, we can see this kind of self-mortification in the familiar patterns of self-judgment, of unworthiness, of guilt. How many times in a day do we judge our practice, judge ourselves for not being good enough? And we believe these thoughts about ourselves. We are devoted to them, and we don't see them, often very quickly, as being painful, unworthy, and unprofitable. In fact, we often build our whole self-story around these thoughts. The Dalai Lama had some very pointed teachings about this, and it's really striking how forceful he was. <clears throat> you know someone asked him, "I don't feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this?" And the Dalai Lama said, "You should not be discouraged. Your feeling I am of no value is wrong. Absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself." That's like just the sword of wisdom, the sword of Manjushri cutting through our belief in these thoughts and feelings of unworthiness. I mean, they arise because of different conditioning in our lives. That's not the problem. The problem is that we believe them. We identify with them. So while the conditioning for these feelings to arise may be strong, and we're convinced that they're true, I really am the worst yogi in the whole, or I'll never be able to do this, or whatever whatever particular form it takes. It's always good to remember that certainty is not an indication of truth. We're certain about a lot of things, and a lot of people are certain about a lot of things. That does not make them true. So don't confuse. Certainty and truth. Another example of self mortification, which is not uncommon and is very painful, is the psychological self mortification, the feeling of guilt. You know, it's very seductive. And I had years ago, I had a very powerful uh, visit from Mara you know, with regard to this. I was on retreat up at the retreat center, and something came to mind about which I felt a lot of guilt, and I was really caught in it, you know, feeling just how bad I was, and it's really guilty. But after a while, I mean, it just kept going on and on and on. So after a while, I just kind of stopped. what is going on here? You know, how am I getting so caught? How am I getting so hooked in this? And when I looked more carefully, when I brought some mindfulness and investigation to it, something very illuminating was revealed. I saw that guilt is basically an ego trip. It's just a lot of I, a lot of self in a negative way. I'm so bad. I'm so awful. I did this, you know, and goes on and on and on with the emphasis on the I. Well, when I saw this, and I, really, I saw it so clearly, I developed a little inner technique which sometimes got expressed physically of what I call wagging the finger at Mara, using the Buddha's words in the sutta, Mara, I see you, you know, every time the guilt arose. And it was amazingly effective. You know, in helping me to see it and not to believe it, not to get caught in the identification with it. There can be wise remorse about unskillful actions that have nothing to do with guilt. These are two very different states. So there's the psychological self-mortification that we should really look at, you know, in our own practice and take the Buddha's words to heart. These are painful, they're unworthy, they're unprofitable. We really can give them up. We can also look at this teaching of the middle way with respect to our meditation practice and right effort. What's the middle way in terms of wise effort and how we practice? This takes a lot of subtle discernment. You know, when we're sitting and maintaining our posture through a lot of pain and discomfort and unpleasant, self, unpleasant sensations, is that wise practice or is it self-mortification? You know, just sitting with the pain. When we're contemplating pleasant, blissful feelings you know, in the body, Are we just indulging sense pleasures? Or is it the practice of the middle way? In all of these questions, there is one simple frame of reference. Is how we're practicing promoting calm, promoting concentration, promoting insight, or is it not? That's the reference point by which we should assess whether our practice is skillful or not. Each of us needs to experiment for ourselves, really with a very open and honest investigation. There were times earlier in my practice, and I, I remember distinctly I was sitting in India in those years in Bodgaya, and I would just move every time the urge to move arose. Yeah, I would move and I would shift position. But after a while, I just saw, I saw for myself, that this was destabilizing the concentration. It just didn't allow my mind the chance to settle and become concentrated. And so I made more determination to sit still through all the different kinds of sensations that arose, whether pleasant or unpleasant. And if we can do this with interest, not with a sense of forcing, but with interest, then we really can deepen our insights into the impermanent, insubstantial, selfless nature of all of these sensations. Now both pleasant and unpleasant are going to come. Can we just sit and be with them all as they come and go? At other times and with other conditions, I found that long periods of a, of a kind of forced non-moving simply was reinforcing patterns of tension in the body and mind. And I found that those times, some adjustments of posture were helpful. So the point here is that we shouldn't simply follow our long-established patterns or habits. But we should experiment and, and see in any particular moment or time period what is most helpful now. And to do it not from a motivation of seeking more pleasure, but from the motivation of seeing what is conducive to the growth of concentration, to the growth of calm, to the growth of insight, of understanding. What is really help, helpful in onward leading In the service of this discernment, there's one distinction which I think is very helpful to investigate. And I think this distinction is really at the heart of skillful practice. And that's the difference between being relaxed and being casual with respect to our practice. Relaxation, relaxation is the key to concentration. You know, it's a settling back into the moment with openness, with receptivity, with ease. It's, relaxation is letting things be. It's letting go of wanting them to be different. It's letting go of resistance to what's arising. And we can practice this attitude of relaxation, of just openness, easeful receptivity with whatever is arising, with objects as simple as the breath or the sensations of movement in the walking. When I was doing my self-retreat this last winter, and I was working a lot with with the breath and just feeling the in-and-out breath, I saw that deepening concentration and calm came more easily from letting go rather than from holding on. You know, and for many years I was practicing, oh, I want to concentrate the mind, I've got to hold on to the breath. But there was a tension in that, in that trying to hold on. And so, Just more recently, I've been practicing this art of relaxation. The body knows how to breathe. We don't have to help it along. The body is breathing all by itself. So we can settle back, letting the mind come to rest at some particular place in the body, like the nose tip or the upper lip or the abdomen, wherever it is. We let the mind come to rest in a particular place. And that's enough, because the breathing is going on all by itself. We don't need to force it. A technique that I found helpful in this regard, uh, Bhikkhu named uh, Vimala Ramsey, uh, written a lot about anapana, and he had this one particular suggestion uh, in some of his books, which, which I found very helpful, and that is to consciously relax the eyes with each breath. Because very often, there's a sense of self-striving, you know, striving for some result, that manifests as a tensing of the eyes. And it becomes so habitual, we don't even notice it. And yet it's reinforcing that wanting or that striving and that tension. So just by remembering with each breath, to also relax the eyes. It helped facilitate this move, this settling back, in a relaxed and easeful way. And so we practice relaxation. We practice non-doing. But in the relaxation of not doing, we also need to take care that the factor of viria of energy remains strong, that we're practicing with a careful and caring continuity of awareness. And there's a phrase in the Dzogchen tradition which really captures this particular balance in practice. It talks about undistracted non-meditation. So I like that. That's what we're doing we're practicing undistracted non-meditation. But if we practice non-doing, the non-meditation part, without the requisite virya, then relaxation easily transforms into quite a casual attitude about our practice, about what's arising. We have forgotten the undistracted part of undistracted non-meditation. So it's not enough not to do. We have to not do in a very undistracted way. So that's, that's where the power is. You know, that's where the beauty of all of this is. This casual attitude that we often fall into with regard to our practice and how our lives are unfolding is what I call being more or less mindful. You know, we're kind of present, but not fully attentive to what's arising. We're generally aware of what's happening, of what we're doing, but are still carried away a lot by background thoughts and emotions and feelings. We can often see this happening as we're walking from place to place. You know, maybe when you're in your room. We kind of know what we're doing. We're kind of present, but not really present, not intimately present moment to moment. So be watchful of this. When we see that we've slipped into this more casual attitude, when, again, we're, we're kind of there, and that's what seduces us. We think we're being mindful, but it's just in this very casual way. It's not, it's not that it's real relaxation in the moment. It's just a certain lack of attentiveness. We're not close. We're not one with what's happening. when we practice in this great middle way, there's the relaxed, open, non-doing with a very vivid, precise awareness of each moment's experience. So really pay attention as you move through the whole day, whether you're in the whole sitting, whether you're going from place to place, whether you're doing walking meditation, whether you're eating, It's a great joy to discover that we can be very exact, very precise with what's arising from a place of total relaxation. It is non-doing. It's that settling back into awareness undistractedly. You know, and so that's, that's the art that we practice. It's realizing that nothing at all is outside of the practice. Every step is equal to every other step. You know, every movement of our arms is equal to any other activity. So this brings the practice really alive. And we, we find this middle way. So the very end of this section of the sutta, the Buddha goes on to say, and what is that middle path, Obikus, that the Tathagata has realized? It is simply the noble eightfold path. Right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is the noble eightfold path realized by the Tathagata. It produces vision. It produces knowledge. It leads to calm, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So we're, I think, all quite familiar with the steps of the Eightfold Path. And last year, you know, while I was here, I gave a whole series of talks, which are on tape, on each of the steps of the Eightfold Path. But really, the heart of it, the heart of the path and the factor out of which all the other co- others come is mindfulness. You know, that great power of being present in the moment. One of the first managers of IMS, he was, I think, back a year or two after we opened. His name is Gary Bach. And for quite a while, more recently, he was working at Spirit Rock. And now, in the last year or so, he's been part of a program which is bringing mindfulness into the schools with young children. This is in California, in Sonoma and Marin counties. So he was teaching mindfulness in this particular elementary school in Petaluma. And there's a curriculum of 15 lessons I think, uh, yeah, I don't know over what time period. And then he said that uh, after the 15 lessons, he would go back once every two months you know, like for a refresher course. These are with second graders you know, teaching mindfulness. And after all of this was over, some of the second graders wrote him some thank you letters. So these are just a few of the comments from these letters. Mindfulness helps me getting better grades. I enjoyed mindfulness. Mindfulness helps me calm down when I get upset. It also helps me with sports and helps me go to sleep at night. Thank you for doing mindfulness. I love it. Mindfulness helped me to be more happy at school. Thank you for teaching mindfulness. Mindfulness changed my life. These are second graders. Mindfulness makes me calm and feel nice. It is so very fun. Mindfulness is the best thing I have done in my life. Mindfulness really gets me calm. I love mindfulness. So let's sit for a few moments. Loving mindfulness.